0: Over the past year or so, the conversation around property affordability has well and truly extended beyond first home buyers into the rental sphere. And as we record this in May 2023, despite interest rates still in a hike cycle and the rhetoric that goes with that, property prices are again on the rise. Supply plays a big part here, of course. Uh, listings are at an all time low with no sign of change. So who knows how long this upswing will continue for? and supply on the rental side, however, is much more problematic as it will take years to rectify along with a hell of a lot of investment and collaboration between all levels of government, community housing providers and the private sector. For the increasing number of dual income families finding it difficult to put a roof over their heads, this is a catastrophe. It does seem that our housing crises have just grown too big for governments to handle alone. Australia's property market, we've said it before, that it's too big to fail. Is it possibly too big to fix?
1: Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide.
2: And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional.
0: Today, we're talking with two people who have been investing a great deal of time, energy and money into understanding the root cause of our property woes so that they can apply some new thinking to what the solutions might be. We've invited Evan Thornley, CEO, and Jane Francis Kelly, Head of Strategy and Insights at Longview to join us. And we've spoken with Evan before back in episode 230. And if you've listened to that episode, you'll recall that he is a technology and social entrepreneur who, for the last seven years, has been consumed with seeking solutions to Australia's housing problems. And recently, Longview collaborated with PEXA to produce a series of three housing affordability white papers. The third of which poses some solutions to the three housing crises they have identified and researched, and we're dying to hear more. Thank you both for joining us.
3: Thanks, Veronica. Evan,
0: I um, absolutely loved um, our last chat. I think you really
2: cut to the the gist of what really drives the property market, and um, you know your white papers that you have released—they're very interesting because I think they they talk about a lot of things that people are talking about. And I mean, before we get detailed into sort of some of the solutions and. You know, really, where the problems start. What are the three crises that you see? I guess in the Australian property market.
3: Yeah. Look, Jane Francis, why don't you outline the way we've framed it up, actually?
4: Yeah. So we're saying that. that so we kind of take a look at three housing crises. We're not saying they're all the housing crises that we're facing, but uh, that that we're experiencing in Australia. But uh, they're a very big ones. So the first is purchase affordability. It's getting harder and harder. To buy a place, um, and it's the you know savings for the deposit is the real barrier there as house prices keep going up. Trying to make that twenty percent deposit. Um, The second uh, and third of the crises are to do with the private rental system. So we know there is a big rental affordability crisis at the moment. How much people have to pay. Um, to find a private rental, and we're seeing super low vacancy rates at the moment, which is one of the mechanisms that's putting those rents up. But also, it's the case that um, Australia is one of the worst places in the developed world to be a renter, um, and that's been the case for a long time. There's very little tenure security, there's real kind of issues around Um, You know, houses having defects uh, that are not kind of addressed, maintenance problems, can't cool them enough in the winter. No, cool in the summer, heat in the winter. It's the opposite way around to where I grew up. I have to keep remembering. Uh, And, you know, and, and, and renters are often treated really poorly by kind of lots of, you know, property managers and real estate agencies. So those are the three.
2: Yeah, the rental affordability crisis has really hit the news really in the last 12 months. But do you think this is, you know, through your research, has been brewing for a long time and, um, you know, how does that sort of interlink to the third challenge, I guess, the third crisis around tenure? Does, it, does the rental crisis actually even make that third worse, right? Because you're getting rent increases and it's more enticing for investors to turn over renters, et cetera.
4: Yeah, no, it is, and actually, the um, uh, you know kind of interest rates rising also means that landlords, who seventy one percent of whom own one property and another nineteen percent own two, so they've really kind of got their eggs in one or two baskets. And then if their kind of mortgage payments for those investment properties have to go up they're kind of often not in the position to be able to absorb all that themselves. And so, you know, kind of that kind of puts pressure on rents as well. So they're all interlinked, um, uh, these crises. No, I agree, they've been cooking for decades in Australia. The private rental system is something that's never really been designed in Australia, right? It's a country which was really focused on homeownership, um, I always used to say that Robert Menzies said three things: one that he was British, second that woman's place was in the home, not in the workplace, and the third was that you weren't a real man until you owned your own home. And it's kind of fascinating that we think that the first two of those are laughably out of date, but the culture is still kind of giving messages around, you know, home ownership. And so it's the only way to access a good experience in housing in Australia at the moment. So the private rental system's always just been kind of, the residual, as I say, it's a really fragmented ownership landscape. Many of the landlords, you know, they want to access the capital gross um, in the market, but they don't necessarily kind of realise how high maintenance and an investment it is, you know, with tenants, unexpected maintenance costs, vacancies. Suddenly, a tenant might kind of lose their job and kind of have difficulties with rent for a couple of months. These are all things that the system is really not set up to be able to deal with at all. You think a lot of the um,
2: talks always about let's getting more people in the market. When one of the solutions to housing uh, purchase unaffordability, I guess that's one of your crises, right? That's getting harder to buy is actually just creating a better rental options. You know, better solution for people for renting like we should, we instead of just focusing on like, let's just get everyone by let's why don't we try to solve out our rental market and our investors first um or, or in in the same time well,
3: well let's try i mean we've got to solve all three right and i guess that's what we've tried to say it's important to separate the three different sets of problems and there's others right homelessness is a fourth crisis and that's separate again and we we don't deal with that but
4: and not enough public housing
3: yeah so there's uh, but but part of the problem, I think, is that we talk about the housing crisis or the housing affordability crisis, and unless you break it into its component parts, what you tend to get is people with one perspective or one hammer in their hand or one set of vested interests proposing that their solution will solve, quote, the housing price crisis. Now, so the development industry, for example, wants to see faster approvals and better zoning. And and that will allow greater supply to come on stream, and that's true, and that would be a good thing. That will principally affect rental affordability, and that's good because you know supply and demand of dwellings um, would be altered in favour of more supply, and that would lower the price, all other things being equal. But they then pretend that that's a solution to purchase affordability, which is nonsense. Actually, the more development that goes on, the more pressure there is on land values; the higher that land values will go. So we just it, we need to separate. The separate problems so that we can understand the impact of any proposed change or alteration a- across the system um, in a, you know, it's a big enough problem, it's worth thinking it through properly rather than in a sort of knee-jerk way.
0: I think too that there's a, there's a lot of rhetoric around individual landlords at the moment, both pro and con. And one of them is that, you know, oh, but the government, since since the Royal Banking Commission and since APRA's intervention, in sort of the mid-teens, uh, you know, investors have been chased out of the property market. And obviously, with if they've had poor returns and all the rest of it, and in 2021, a lot evacuated the property market as well. And then you've got certain governments, like the Queensland government's quite famous for in, trying to introduce very, uh, you know, not land, not landlord-friendly or not investor-friendly uh, legislation but the, the, the fact is encouraging more investors into the marketplace doesn't solve the problem that there's still only a set amount of dwellings, you know. So you, you go, fine, so owner-occupied might not own it, an investor buys it, but at the end of the day, we're still, what, something like a million rooms short or something in this country. So, so you know, that, that's, that in itself is like one of those vested interests, I guess, those vested interests on both sides of, of that argument, um, those from an ideological sense and those from an industry sense as well. So... But one of the things that you, you say in your reports, and I've heard you say this before too, um, Evan, is that tenants and landlords are both having a failed experience with property. So can you elaborate on that?
3: Well, I think this is what we were trying to say in White Paper 2. You, you know, I'm a little sick of the sort of landlords versus tenants narrative in the same way as I'm a bit sick of bosses versus workers, right? Systems can be bad for both groups, right? And... And so rather than trying to tilt a poor quality playing field in favour of one group or the other, how about we change the playing field? And, you know, part of, I think, if in some ways it may not have been new news for people in White Paper 2 that, that, that renters get a raw deal in this country, though it may have been new news that it's actually a worse deal than it is in many other countries. Maybe people weren't aware of that. But I think it probably was new news to a lot of people, ironically, including a lot of landlords. That the system is not working for the majority of them either. Their investment returns are poor. Their experience of the stresses and difficulties of being a landlord is poor. So um, it's possible that the system's bad for both. And and that was really a part of what we wanted to outline, so that actually we we catalogue all of the problems for all of the parties, because if you are trying to get a solution, then you, you, you know you are going to need to try and get solutions that that, as we say, swim with the tide of the economics and that, that get better outcomes for as many participants as possible. And so White Paper 3 starts talking about a radical restructuring of housing where you separate the financial flows from the physical assets and the occupancy of those assets. Allow people to invest in housing, and we all want that, and we all want more investment in housing, but not have it so directly tied to individual assets and individual occupants of those assets. So that to us is what sort of breaks the Gordian knot of the private rental market and potentially liberates a better outcome for both renters and landlords and you know property investors. So
4: we had a diagram in White Paper 2 where I remember telling our graphic design people, you know, can you draw a house? that is like being pulled apart in the middle in like a tug of war, right? So often a landlord just has one property uh, in three quarters of cases almost. And so that one property has got to satisfy the needs of landlords, which are for return, you know, kind of uh, sort of low maintenance and flexibility because they've got all their eggs in that one house. Um, to mix mess of furs. Meanwhile, on the other side, the tenants want stability, they want the security of tenure, they'd like maintenance stuff, you know, kind of kept up to date and, and kind of treated well. You know, they they want to feel like they've got the security of a home. And this one property in the middle is trying to satisfy these completely incompatible needs. And so we're kind of saying as long as you have the fragmented ownership of private the private rental system at the moment, you can never improve uh rental experience the thing is really broken for both parties
2: well i mean you get you've got a long-term need for maybe from a tenant um maybe a short-term lifestyle change or need from an investor um and may, potentially you get that dream scenario right where an investor holds a property long term um and they keep the place maintained yeah and the
3: investors got this great and we see that in a in a small minority of cases where The landlord's got an investment in what turns out to be a high quality asset and they have a good tenant in there and the landlord ends up making a reasonably peaceful and good return and the tenant feels that it's really their home. That definitely happens, but honestly, by sheer chance, and I would say in a small minority of cases, um, the bulk of the system is not delivering for either renters or, or landlords. And So when you're in this
2: stage, sort of white paper three, obviously we've read it, so there's you know there's lots of solutions there, and um, you know we'll send it out to our listeners, et cetera. But what are some of your solutions, I guess, for the the overall market? Um, you know, let's say focus on the rental sort of crisis and
3: rental solutions first for for Australia? Well well, this I think you know in many other countries, you do have large managed funds um, that own housing. And, and that rent it out on a long-term basis. And uh, that can work well or badly, by the way. There's nothing magic about institutional ownership, therefore means great results. There are plenty of evil corporate landlords in America, for example. Um, but all other things being equal, properly structured and properly regulated, having long-term institutional ownership separates those the needs of individual investors; they can buy and sell shares or units in the funds as they need to to meet their own needs, um, and the fund can then manage the homes uh, in a way that 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 makes it people's home over the long term. So, you know, that's a solution that's quite uh, widespread in uh, parts of North America and particularly parts of Northern Europe,
4: Germany, and Scandinavia. Have yeah.
3: Them. Yeah, we're beginning to experiment with that a little bit in the build-to-rent sector in Australia, but but that's a tiny proportion of the dwellings. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a much bigger bought-to-rent segment, right, it, that covers the 97% of dwellings that already exist. Um, and And if that was well-structured, that would create an environment where property investors, landlords, could get a good return, professionally managed and without individual landlord headaches, and where renters could have security of tenure and proactive maintenance.
4: And uh, the institutional owners would have incentive, an incentive to kind of keep good renters for a long time. And so we've been in White Paper 3, we have what we call a draft renters compact, Um, where we kind of talk about the kinds of things that renters would really like, but that, you know, kind of fragmented ownership landlords can't provide. So, you know, kind of long-term kind of contracts. The ability to do interior alterations, because the institutional owner is kind of, you know, long-holding, so for capital growth. So, you know, you can treat the place like your home uh, within reason. Maintenance guarantees, minimum standards on heating and cooling, you know, kind of agreements about kind of how right rent increases might happen, um, help with rent arrears caused by loss of employment, and and respectful treatment. So, you know, institutional owners could differentiate themselves by what they're willing to kind of offer their renters. So, on that, and, and you
0: point this out in one of the reports, one of the papers, That Australian rental yields haven't kept up with the increases in property value, and and our yields here. And and look, I just preface this by saying I never recommend people buy for yield. However, when you're looking at institutional investors, they're going to be looking at yields, of course. Um, Can the build to rent or even the bought to rent sector be profitable in the face of this? Given that the drivers of, you know, entry into this sort of market to be able to provide this sort of housing for for tenants you know, is going to come at a greater cost than it would potentially in North America or even in Europe. You know, they don't have the same upward pressures on prices in those markets that we have here. How does that work?
3: Well, I think that's what we were trying to outline in White Paper 1. The Australian market is different to those markets. It's higher capital growth and lower yield. That's not probably better or worse. Um, In many ways, I think it's actually better. Um, But, uh, But the investors whether they're individuals or institutions should therefore not be focused on yield they should be focused on capital growth uh, because that's where the money is in this market and actually institutions in many ways are better placed to have a long term focus on capital growth and patient capital than many individual landlords that's actually uh that's actually quite a good fit and uh you know if you can get exposed to stable long term capital growth which is an inherent quality of Australian residential property, correctly bought, yes, <laughs> um, yeah, that the, gave the, the you yes. yes. <laughs> right. Then, uh, then, and and in many cases, because it is stable, uh, you can have some degree of leverage, uh, levered exposure to that to increase your returns on equity. Then, that's a perfectly good institutional investment. Uh, I- institutions in this country are principally familiar with investing in property through commercial property, which is a much more yield-driven asset class. So there needs to be a bit of re-education for the instos, um, but they invest in other class asset classes uh, for, for growth, right? I mean, nobody invests in venture capital or private equity for dividend flows, right? They invest for capital growth, um, you know, and it's patient money, right? Biotech, it'll take you 10 years to get your money back and you won't get any dividends. They're all negative cash flow, but but if you invest in the right assets, you'll end up making very strong returns. So um, there are plenty of uh, ways that Australian residential property uh, can be a good institutional asset class, but it needs to be packaged up in a way that is uh, that, that, that meets the needs of those institutional investors.
0: And that's an interesting, um, you know, re- reframe in a way, because people look at you know like venture capitalists yes you're right, you're right you, you know you you invest in venture capital fund you're not expecting a dividend and you are actually depending on the type of fund you're investing in you're actually hoping for a return <laughs> as opposed but but with property it is perceived as less risky even though we all know that some people lose money in property um, it's perceived as less risky so it's almost it's interesting to put in the same bucket as those types of investments well well you know I mean because re- of that
3: because it is less risky I mean venture capital you're hoping for probably thirty percent irRS uh in property you'd be high single digit or low double digit in many cases so because it is lower risk you are more comfortable um but you know I mean people invest in gold too last time I checked there's no income flow from that I mean different asset classes are a different mix of of, of capital growth and and yield
2: yeah so so on this um in such, like this basically private investor market right so you're saying that you know, the institutions like the super funds, et cetera, they're definitely looking at this build to rent model, right? And maybe 30,000, maybe 100,000 apart- know, apartments generally will be added to the 11 million dwellings over the next decade, right? So it's not going to be a huge increase in supply, right? There's already say 3 million investment properties, maybe another 100,000 in a decade, like it's not going to solve the problem. But what you're suggesting is the mum and dad investors or, um, you know, everyday investors, instead of them buying individual properties, which have got Individual sort of uh, risks, I guess, because you're taking all the eggs in one basket, um, and generally speaking, they haven't been doing it very well uh, for lots of different reasons. A better solution potentially for some of them would be to invest in a fund that's a co- group of maybe hundreds of thousands of investors or maybe ten thousand different personal investors um, that then go and buy residential property right um, now just if you're thinking about that, what sort of tax um changes would have to make that enticing because there's issues with leverage in the fund and also there's issues for the individual getting exposure to the fund because um they could get a lot more leverage personally you know they could borrow against the next asset they could use more equity in their home to you know leverage because they've got the rental income etc so what changes do you think need to happen at a lending level and a tax level to make that better than going all into one property
3: yeah well well um I think there's a third change, which is part of the reason you do this professionally, which is better asset selection, right? Uh, I mean, the, 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 the first thing that you need to get right and the most important thing you need to get right in property investing is to buy the right properties, not the wrong properties, right? So when I say just virtue virtual, that's a huge just. But if you can have a professionally managed fund that is systematically investing in high-quality assets then you are going to, on average, get much stronger underlying returns for the investors, regardless of what leverage or tax situation may then flow. So let's start with the fundamentals. We've got to buy the right assets. And as you point out, and as as our research shows, individual investors, generally speaking, are relatively um, relatively unable to know which are the right in- properties, and in fact are often hoodwinked by people who know a lot more than they do into buying the wrong properties, So let's get people exposed to the right assets, point one. That's actually the single most important thing. Um, The second question then is, can you do so in a way where they're not tax disadvantaged? Um, And that's where um, there are a number of possible solutions and in a separate way, shared equity funds, for example, because they're involved in principal places of residence are not exposed to land tax. So... That way you're not tax disadvantaged in fact you're you're, you're you share the tax benefits of homeowners but uh, for individual rental properties then uh, you would need to have structures that at least mean you know worse off for things like land tax and you can do that with a series of micro trusts um, but there are also other parts of the market like the affordable housing market uh, which already exist and which already have existing government exemptions for people that can provide housing at, at 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 you know 25% below market rent. So there's ways of dealing with that. When it comes to bank debt and leverage, the broader the asset class, the better. The thing that would make these things much more manageable and would give lenders greater confidence to be able to lend and have security would be if there was a liquid secondary market for the shares in the funds. So if somebody did borrow to buy shares in the funds, which would be a sensible thing for them to do in certain cases, then the lender would need to know that if that person stopped making those repayments that they could get the security for their loan. Now, currently, they have to go and sell a house to do that, which is actually very unhelpful to everybody, most importantly for whoever's living in that home. Um, if uh, If somebody's units in a fund... Uh, were the security for their lending, then those units would simply be sold into a secondary market. So that's why in White Paper 3 we talk about the importance of, you know, property is an illiquid asset class, and as a consequence, investors need and demand, and lenders need and demand, a premium to deal with the fact that they have to cope with that illiquidity. If you can have a more liquid market, and I don't mean so day traders can knock it up and down, you know, 15 times in a day, like monthly liquidity would be fine, right? It doesn't need to be hyper-liquid and and and, and hyper-volatile. In fact, that would be a bad thing because this is a non-volatile asset class. Let's not introduce unnecessary volatility, but just uh, a way where people can seamlessly adjust their portfolios or move in and out of the asset class, or God forbid, um, if somebody's pledged to security and, and that has to be sold, where that can happen in an orderly fashion. So we think that that's one of the keys to creating a funds system that would work is for there to be uh, a liquid market for shares in those funds or units in those funds.
0: And so that, that as a solution isn't really a solution for affordability. It's not really a solution for supply or anything like that. It's a solution for a better experience for both tenants and investors and um, and I know that um your white paper does call for private capital from traditional sources like superannuation, funds, banks, family offices, et cetera, et cetera. But you also mentioned tapping into the two point one trillion dollars currently invested in housing by you know individual you know mums and dads investors. I yeah, which is quite interesting. So so can you elaborate a bit about that and how you see that as a resource that potentially could, Unlock some more, I guess, some more investment in residential property. But bearing in mind that all everything we're talking about at the minute, it's just dealing with the pie that we already have. It's not actually making that pie any bigger.
3: And and we're not suggesting that this one solution solves all the problems. In fact, that's why we're quite deliberately separating the problems so that we can separate it. So, you know, I would rather own one percent of a hundred properties than a hundred percent of one. Right, and I actually think, particularly if those hundred properties were professionally selected and managed. So that's the basic principle that I think will make it more attractive for uh, landlords to put at least a portion of their investment in property into funds rather than single uh, single homes. Um, so this- you,
0: do you have this fund already?
3: Uh, no, but we're working on it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm sure you are. And, and just uh, just because we want to, just you know, we've been talking about self interest here, so I just want to sort of get this clear and out on the table. Oh,
3: yeah, and, and let's let's be clear. Okay, yeah, Longview aspires to be a significant funds manager in residential property. I make no apology for that whatsoever. What we've done in the white papers jointly with Pexa is to explain, among other things, why. We want to do that because we've thought about the problems for a long time and we think these are potentially transformative solutions. And so actually rather than keep all that to ourselves, um, we're putting it out there and encouraging uh, others, everybody in the industry to build that industry together. You know, I'm from we'd, Silicon Valley. We'd love Valley. to
4: shift the incentives yeah. in the market overall and have other players. um, the, um it's how Evan kind of persuaded me to come to work for Longview, having worked in think tanks and for government for years and so on. He's like, this problem is so big, right? You've actually kind of got to, to bring private capital to the table to make enough of a difference. Um, and and I also kind of would say that it's, it, it you know, when we talk about institutional ownership being a solution for kind of landlords, investors... And also for tenants on the tenure security and experience side, it's quite easy. Um, We've kind of found some people will sort of underestimate how important that is. You know, we think of private renters; it's fine if it's you know kind of people in their early twenties saving up to spend a year in Bali and so on and so forth. But there are twenty six percent of households in Australia are long term private renters. There are you know single parents uh, with kids who. Who, if they, you know, living with constant threat of having to move, and in a very low vacancy market, that might mean having to move kids' in schools. You give up your neighbourhood kind of uh, connections. You might have to move away from extended family who are helping you for childcare and so on. I mean, these are enormous, enormous kind of issues that people are living with in the private rental system.
2: So, Evan, I mean, there, there, there has been um, obviously we've got a you know massive superannuation industry. We've got a massive commercial property. Um, investment industry. Why do you feel, though, that no one's been able to crack the residential investment fund? You know, maybe it is the land tax, maybe it is the leverage. Why have we not got residential property funds like this existing?
3: Yeah, uh, I've been asking that question for the last seven years, and I think I've learned a few of the answers to that question. One of the answers is people have tended to misunderstand the asset class and have focused on yield. Uh, and have looked at the residential models in places like the Sun Belt in North America and tried to bring those yield oriented residential models to Australia. And broadly, that's failed. The second reason I think is because people say, people approach it from a funds manager point of view. And you say, oh, if I can just get 200 million from Australian super, I'll have a fund and then everything will be great. Well, there's no way that the institutions are going to be the first investors in a new fund, in a new product, in a new asset class. That's simply not going to happen. So, Um, so many people have trailed their coats through superannuation offices over the years trying to get the super funds to be the seed investor in their funds so I think that's a mistake Um, the third reason which is a huge barrier or it bloody well ought to be and it isn't for many people who think they want to be fund managers in residential is really important and it partly goes to what Jane Francis is talking about every home is different Every person who lives in that home, whether they're an owner-occupier or a renter, is different. And so residential property, unlike most other financial asset classes that people can manage funds in, needs to have what we call field operations, right? If you look at the big owners of rental homes in America, like Invitation Homes, they've got 80,000 single-family dwellings, not multifamily, 80,000 single-family dwellings. Most of them bought one by one right so one by one they chose those assets and one by one they find the right renter and 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 build a long term relationship with them you need extensive field operations to do that well if you don't have good field operations you'll either do it badly or not at all and that will deliver a poor quality experience for the people in the homes and a poor quality result for investors and so traditional funds managers simply have not got the first starting point to how to deal with the fragmented reality of residential property as an asset class, and you know that's something for better or worse we at Longview deeply understand. We manage forty three hundred rental properties. Uh, I, I'm proud to say we've been voted by our peers in the industry one of the best in the country in doing that, and more importantly by our clients, both landlords and renters, um, and our buyers advisory team, and and our colleagues in the industry like Veronica. You know we do that for a living. We help assess individual properties and buy them um, buy them thoughtfully and, and, and professionally. And so what we want to see is a transformation of the residential property management industry and the buyer's advisory industry to being a central partnership with the funds management industry to provide the field expertise for this to be done well. And and that's why we're trying to build a technology platform that will enable the, 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 the groups to work together and we're, we're early in that process.
1: I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my Buyers Agent Mentoring Programme, access to suburb help for investors or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If
2: you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website wealthful.com.au.
1: Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant elephantintheroom.com.au. And what's your sort of thoughts around
2: sort of getting leverage within the fund right let's let's say this um uh, you know investor wants to put in hundred thousand dollars they've got hundred thousand dollars of equity in their home right that they could invest they could put that in shares, they could put that in commercial property, they could put that into a residential investment fund or they could go and buy another residential investment property right then maybe they've got another Three, $400,000 of borrowing capacity they could borrow. So they're considering do I buy $100,000 in a residential investment fund or do I go and buy a $500,000 investment property? Like, where do you sort of do you see yourselves only really suiting the clients who are tapped out?
3: Well, as I say, if there was a liquid secondary market for units in those funds, uh, then you would likely be able to get lending support to put some leverage and put a hundred thousand of your equity and and a hundred or two hundred thousand of lenders' uh, uh, capital into purchasing units in that fund, like a margin loan sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, but on a much more stable asset class. Um, now you'd get less leverage than you would on a secured piece of real estate, but if you've got better underlying returns, hopefully you'll end up with. Perhaps a pretty similar outcome with, frankly, much less risk. Right? I mean, I would rather have two x leverage on eight percent capital growth than four x leverage on on maybe three or four percent capital growth, or maybe a loss. We all know leverage is great on the way up, but you know there's real risks in leverage, as people with margin loans find out in volatile asset classes. So you can't separate bringing the power of leverage from focusing on the quality of the underlying assets. I'm going to keep coming back to that. You've got to buy the right properties first. The financial structure is what you use to optimise a good investment decision. It will never optimise a bad investment decision and it will often make it catastrophically worse.
0: So with one of the challenges, um, like in a buyer's agent business, right, is scale. And and it's something that I've looked at in my tiny little boutique buyer's agency in Sydney to say, if I build a big business, I've I faced issues with scale across the board. But if I'm going to just give, like, make my office really big, get as many buyers agents as I can, be s- own Sydney, right, there's really only a small percentage of properties that I really would count as being A-grade that are currently available at any given time. Um, and so then for any fund is going to run into difficulties with their categorisation of what's a, what's a good asset. I would imagine that as when it gets to a certain size – you're going to have to start sort of making some B-grade um, acquisitions. Is that part of the thinking around this, that that's that's acceptable? Um, you know, being pragmatic about this?
4: We go for R-grade, and I'll let Evan explain what that means. R-grade, ah, okay. <laughs> so um, R stands for RODWELL, which is an, an acronym we use internally, and... Um, uh, we, we we love that. We don't have many acronyms, but we've got that one, and we're waiting for the first Longview child to be born. Roddy, short for Rodwell. It means robust, older dwelling on well-located land. Okay, <laughs> I love so, it. So essentially, what we need to do is kind of make sure – I mean, you want to be uh, – the most important thing is to avoid properties which are going to underperform the market, right? So, you know, you want to kind of make sure that you're performing at least at the market and and maybe more, but that still, you know, could be 40% of properties. Now, how do you identify those? Well, you know, most briefly, it's the ones with high land content because as in white paper one, we showed it's land values that drive the property prices in the Australian property market. And so you're looking for places which are well-located blocks of land um, that have a, a robust older dwelling. And an older dwelling, because that means that a lot of the building will have depreciated by then, increasing the proportion that is land value. But you must be robust. Um, uh, We we used to call them sod wells, solid older dwellings and well-located blocks of land. But sod, particularly in the country I grew up in, is not a good word. So we've got yeah solid <laughs>
0: yeah
4: it has to be robust solid because you want people to be able to make a home out of it for years so we're you know the, what we would be kind of looking for is not necessarily the brand new dwellings that haven't kind of depreciated yet but they need to be really good places and um, because people are going to kind of and what that means as well because you know they kind of The the building we have depreciated a lot. Is that people can really treat it like their own home within reason. So if they want to knock down, you know, an internal wall, paint all their bedrooms pink, you know, whatever it is that they want to do, that's entirely doable. I'm talking about institutional
3: ownership. I I guess just to explain that uh, uh, one of our sort of slogans is um, all the values in the dirt, all the problems are in the building. You've got to get the right building, the right dwelling that is a solid home that that, that, that is actually relatively low maintenance and is is has got plenty of years of useful life in it. And again, that's where field expertise comes in, right? So, but, but Veronica, I think if you're buying one property for a, a client, either as their home or as an investment, you absolutely want to shoot the lights out and get a top 5% property, okay? You owe it to your client to do that. If you're investing in a large portfolio of homes on behalf of a large group of investors, um, the bar is a little bit lower than that. You just need to have a good performing portfolio that on average is as good or better than than the market and and so you know as Jane Francis said, if you were buying homes from the top forty percent of the market, that would mean that the average performance of that portfolio would outperform the property market itself by several hundred basis points and the market on average is doing 7% capital growth. So you you could get a collection of underlying assets, which deliver sufficiently good performance at low volatility um, without having to be perfect with each decision. So I think there's, you know, as we know, there's a $10 trillion asset class out there. Um, there's enough of those um, uh, properties for the foreseeable future. I aspire to the day when any fund is so big that it runs out of supply. Or one of the other concerns people have is somehow you're going to move the market. I'm like, have you ever tried moving a ten trillion dollar? It's it's awfully hard to do that. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, good luck. I mean, and and presumably you have diversity in terms of location as well. So therefore, that's you know you're not going to be able to buy that many at once. So, okay, so we've talked through sort of philosophically in a way uh, what might help the experience of both investors and tenants, but still we haven't tackled supply and that's obviously something that's possibly beyond the remit of this conversation and beyond what you're proposing anyway, because on the other... S-
3: As luck would have it no, can I, oh. I want to give you a supply answer? Go for it. Okay. So we've thought a lot about affordable housing, Okay. Let's start with the most basic and logical point. The cheaper the new houses or the new homes are to build per unit of housing, then the easier it will be for them to be affordable for the people who are going to live in them, right? If they, I mean, I, I look at you know a number of the build-to-rent operators talking about, you know, we're building 1,800 new units, you know, what was it? Um, t- 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 2,000 new units for a $1.8 billion portfolio. And I'm like, wow. So your build cost is nine hundred thousand per so cent. Like that's not affordable housing, right? Now I think if you talk to anyone in the development industry and in the in the housing space more broadly, you talk to people like Robert Prattle and at Housing All Australians, it's widely understood that the lowest cost form of housing is what I'll call large format medium rise. Okay, so um, uh, larger uh, uh, developments of modest you know three to five floors um and you can build good communities at that scale and the average cost per dwelling is the lowest high rise is quite high cost per dwelling because half the floor space is taken up with ingress and egress because you need lots and lots of lifts and other stuff and the engineering costs are high and the cfmeu will kill you and like it's a pain
4: it's also much easier to do mixed use at that medium format they have have lots of different types of households. Uh, sorry, housing uh, stock for different types of households, um, and uh, salt and pepper uh, social housing.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and if there was more built to rent of that type of housing, it would be affordable housing, and much more of the multifamily dwelling sector in places like the US is like that. But it's easier in the US because there's more available land. So, so the problem is actually how do you get the sites for that form of housing, right? Close to transport and amenity in the suburbs where people want to live. And the answer is the only way you could do that is to patiently land bank um, over a period of many years a group of properties such that at some stage in the distant future, you have a large agglomeration in a good location that could then be redeveloped for affordable housing. The problem is, no one has a business model that that makes sense for that. All the developers tend to have short-term business models where they don't want to have holding costs. I mean, if they do, they're buying a farmland in the path of progress, right, um, for, for a new suburb development on the fringe, or they're buying a brownfield site in Docklands to take the Melbourne example to build a high-rise tower. Nobody's in the business of land banking the suburbs. Uh, again, forgive my Melbourne-centric... Uh, Examples, they're similar. You know, the only people that land bank the suburbs in Melbourne are Chadston Shopping Centre and Scott College, right? But they do. They're gradually buying everything around them. So somebody needs to gradually accumulate large sites close to transport and amenity in the suburbs on a large scale. Okay, well, um, a rental fund that was buying solid older dwellings on well-located land could do that where every individual property that you bought in and of itself would justify through its own capital growth um, being part of the fund. But if you choose your sites wisely, and they are more scarce, by the way, Veronica, if you chose between two relatively equivalent assets and you chose the one that was surrounded by other similar homes that over the next 15 or 20 years would all come up for sale and you bought them all, then you could build a large-scale site that would be the type of location that will allow uh, the type of affordable housing that we need on a mass basis. Now, you'd need to manage the renter flow with a view to when that consolidation would occur, and and you could do that because you'd know what you were doing and you would do that in concert with the renters and perhaps even, as often happens, uh, have a plan where where you're fully transparent with the renters about what you're doing and there's a transition plan for at least a portion of them to live in some of the newly built homes or whatever. So as long as you do it consciously and thoughtfully and transparently, you can do that. But so we actually don't see any other business model around right now that is going to create the sites necessary for large-scale affordable housing where people need and want to live. And so that's actually one of the benefits of creating a rental fund is that it would it would over time create those sites so that that's not unfortunately an answer to short-term supply but the truth is there are no answers to short-term supply and 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 and, and whoever can do whatever they can should do it because it's desperately needed and the rental market's a disaster but somebody ought to be building for the long term to actually have a permanent answer and, and i think this type of solution may be part of that
4: and i just wanted to kind of sort of add that the term land banking has often you know had a really bad reputation because you know people have been kind of sort of buying land and then keeping it vacant what this would do is be having people living in those properties all that way through plus what we would want to do is then kind of partner with others to make sure that the thing is redeveloped you know partner with governments around social health, all of that kind of stuff so um it's very different from the um the kind of land banking that quite rightly sets off alarm bells with lots mm. of people.
3: Yeah. It's a very good point.
2: I mean, in the um papers today, there's a you know, the the Labor's um, you know, uh, doing quite well, right? The, you know, in the election, right? And there's an election coming around in just two years and you know, policies for that election are starting to you know, housing unaff- unaffordability, right? Like this is great for investors, but Ultimately, if you're going to buy those quality assets, you're going to be out there competing with first home buyers um, and you're going to be competing on scarce assets. Like that's housing affordability of good assets is only going to be like the scarce assets, you're creating more demand in there um, and you're going to be doing better than other investors. But what's your thoughts on labor? Um, Because it's, you know, to solve housing on affordability, there's already the tack on negative gearing, which is most likely they're going to come back up. There's also going to be more uh incentive to increase the capital gains tax you know uh discount right um or reduce it so what's your thoughts on you know the the power the the temptations always to go against investors right to solve this housing affordability issue when we should potentially be encouraging investors into the market to create to solve the rental housing uh the rental affordability issue so what's your thoughts on this you know balance
4: So I'll let Evan talk about kind of labour. Although I'll just sort of make the point that at the moment they're very focused on the lower income end of the market, um, which is a really good thing because that needs a lot of attention. But there's also all of the rest of the market that um you know is kind of coming from this as well. Um, and the way that I kind of think about it is. Um, I mean, first of all, to kind of make Evan's point about, you know, you'd really have to be buying a lot of properties before you were kind of affecting, um, you know, the way that the market was moving and so on. I mean, that's that's a long time off. Um, the um, And well, the way that I think about it is the Bank of Mum and Dad, right? So, the, um, uh, so like half of Australians currently have, um, you know, access to the Bank of Mum and Dad. For, you know, really quite kind of a uh, high amount of average gifts in in, a stri- in in Sydney In some research that we did uh, recently, we found the average gift was about $110,000. So someone kind of said to me... Sorry, did, um, did sorry. you say
0: half of
4: 1st home buyers yeah, uh, have access like, to the bank of mum and dad? In, right. And okay, so sorry. we're going to focus on the people who don't have access to the bank of mum and dad. And, you know, I have to include myself, I my parents live in a small island off the west coast of scotland they just thought it was hilarious the whole idea of um anyway so the um i tell the people about they sort of said they say you were you know kind of uh bidding for a place so i live in this one bedroom apartment and i bid for it on the 4th of march 2020 um and they said say you know there was an institutional owner that was going to be kind of bidding beside you you would you want them and i said well you know uh I'll tell you what did happen, which was that there were two bidders for the apartment. There was me on a single kind of uh, income and so on and so forth. And then there was a young woman in her early 30s who had her father with her. It got to a certain point in the bidding. Uh, I was actually too scared to be there, but my friend who was there told me what had happened afterwards. She turned to her father and he offered her another thirty thousand dollars. And so she kind of went up. And so I eventually got the place. But that's you know, how much extra it cost me because she had the bank of mum and dad physically with her, um kind of at the auction. And so I think' say like, th- th- this is you know, sort of what you're kind of bidding against, if you like, is kind of happening already in an industry. we're trying to make it a more of a level playing field and not just the people who are able to access, you know, those kinds of extra. Sums, but sorry, Evan will have a better answer on the broader point. I,
0: I just can I can I just add in there that I see that happen all the time at auction, all the time, and yeah, a lot of people they do. It's interesting how this perception: oh, investors are, are taking away first home buyers' opportunities. It's like, well, actually, the bank of mum and dad's taking away investors' opportunities in many cases. Um, and I've seen I've I've seen all sorts of behaviour at auction. I find auctions fascinating for lots of reasons. So this is just one one of the bits of behaviour I see. And and I've even seen the adult children saying to and Dad, I've never seen Mum say no, son. I'll stump it, stump it up. I've never seen a mother say that. But I have not to say that they couldn't or wouldn't. But you know, no son, you know, no daughter. Um, that's all right. I'll I'll stump up the fifty grand. Oh, we can do it. We can do it. And and there's a there's a bit of an ego thing I think also for some of these parents to go. You know, I can do this, and and I'm here to help, and I'm successful, and there's all this stuff that plays out at these auctions. Um, and so I, I'm quite yes I, I'm, I'm aware. In fact, we just recently interviewed. Um, we, we just got another interview. I think it might be the week before this um, on the bank of mum and dad and some solutions to help those people help their children. But like you're saying, is that if you don't have access to that, you are, the gap between those who have and those who have not is going to get wider and wider in this society. So what are you proposing to help first home buyers? Because we've been talking about the investors and the tenants. But I do know you've you've actually launched a fund here, right?
3: Yeah. Well, we we and a number of other people uh, have uh, are are moving into providing shared equity as our governments, right? So, and and I think we view this as an inevitability in Australia. you know, here's the fascinating thing. People often say, oh, I think we're in a housing bubble. And you say, oh, why is that? And they say, well, because the ratio of house prices to incomes has been going up for 20 years or 30 years and it has to reverse at some point and the whole thing's going to crash. The reality is that gap has been widening for 100 years through every economic circumstance, through depressions, through interest rates going up and down, through different tax policies. Why has it been growing for 100 years? Because as we said in White Paper 1, the pressure of population has been growing land values for 100 years. And property prices are tied to land values which are driven by population, not so much by income. Okay, well then how has that circle been squared for 100 years? The answer is every generation has had to create a new financial approach to deal with that reality. Our great-grandparents, if they could buy a home at all, save money and paid cash for a home. And that's when the gap between house prices and incomes was much lower. Our grandparents were the first generation to get access to a more broad-based system of mortgages. Maybe 20-year mortgages, maybe 60% LVR, and that's how they bridged that wider gap. Our parents' generation were getting access to 75 or 80% mortgages, and were often bringing in the beginnings of a second income to cope with an even wider gap. My generation are getting 80 to 95% mortgages plus LMI plus often two full-time incomes. The mortgage lemon has been squeezed about as tight as it can be to cope with the fourth generation's challenge of that ever-widening gap. The fifth generation are already moving on what we call third-party equity. That's already a reality. It's principally called the bank of mum and dad. And that's how that gap is being solved, but only for the people that have it. And so now... Firstly, the Bank of Mum and Dad is the fifth largest home financier in the country and growing and will continue to grow. Secondly, governments are now coming in to step in for those who don't have a Bank of Mum and Dad. We've gone from zero to three, well, a little bit in Western Australia for a long period of time, but in the last couple of years, $3 billion roughly being uh, attributed by governments to new shared equity schemes, again, providing third-party equity. But as Jane Francis said, principally to the folks at the lowest end of affordability, leaving a big gap in the middle. For folks who don't qualify for the government money, or the government money runs out, but who don't have the bank of mum and dad, and then there is a new uh, commercial shared equity uh, industry developing. Um, Longview aspires to be part of that. We've just launched a shared equity fund. Our friends and colleagues at Hope Housing um, have, have got, I think, sixty million in their fund now that are and are out helping essential workers buy homes close to where they live. Um, other colleagues in 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 like Frontier um, and and others are doing that. So. There will be third-party shared equity. Um, Unlike government, it it obviously has to deliver a commercial return to the investors who put money into it, which is different to the bank of mum and dad and different to the government. But you're going to need all three of those sources of third-party equity to get any sort of even vaguely level playing field and to cope with the reality that if we don't have third-party equity and or we only have the bank of mum and dad, then home ownership in this country becomes an inherited privilege. And that is not a situation that is acceptable to any of us, I don't think.
0: Have you thought through to the sixth generation yet? <laughs> Just
3: like I
0: think the whole
2: deposit hurdle, right, is, is the big issue for first home buyers, right? And so, um, the government have been doing the first home five percent deposit schemes right. That that's obviously been a roaring success, you know. Um, and you know, it was ten thousand, it was another ten thousand. Um now it's the 35000 right? right? Um, then you've got, you know, the New South Wales government. I mean, I know the Labor are unwinding the land tax change, um, but you could very easily see, um, you know, some type of stamp to land tax change capping across the country. Um, and you're also seeing really low deposit home loans come out, right? So CUS is a, one that's come out recently that is an LMI alternative. And so, yeah, this space is it's not just the home equity. There's, there's innovation happening on the home loan space. There's obviously, you know, changes with... Um, Government home loans as well, and then there's also changes to stamp duty. So, you know, I think you're right. I think the the future is where and, and longer home loans. Right? um We're already seeing banks change home loans from 30 to 40 years, which is making home loans more affordable
4: over a longer term. Whether it's so, do you think that that didn't help me though, Chris? I was 49 when I bought, and so they would only give me a 25 year one, and I won't be retiring anytime soon. Yeah.
3: <laughs> all, all, all I'm saying is, Chris, there is a logical limit to debt finance right? (laughs) However you want to structure it, however you want to split the stack into ever different risk layers that get parceled out to different investors, there there will be a limit to debt finance because it requires a coupon and it requires security. And as the gap widens, there is going to be, in addition to everything you've described is the continuation of the evolution of debt finance over the last four generations. Um, But all I'm saying is there is now, in addition to that, continuing evolution of debt finance there is a recognition that third-party equity is going to have a bigger and bigger role because the debt the debt can only get you so far um, and that's happening it, that's not my prediction that's reality and, and and I'm trying to outline the reasons why I think that will continue and will grow you know one of the things in white paper one that we outline which I think is shocking to people is the value of suburban land in this country as a share of the national balance sheet has gone from 30% to close to 50% in the last few decades. Uh, The share market, Australian equities, has been roughly stable at about 15%, right? So the reality is more and more of the wealth in this country is buried in the land of our suburbs. And that trend will, whether people like it or not, this is part of our point in white paper one, you can like that or hate it. Uh, Many of us don't like it. It just is, man. And unless population policies of this country and the entire structure of the Australian economy and 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 some are advocating that and they should do that I'm not um then we have to deal with the reality as we find it and and find solutions for people that give uh, a level of a playing field and and third-party equity is going to have to be uh, a significant part of those solutions um you, you know Short of the only thing I can see that would make a material difference, uh, no one's going to suddenly plan new cities that didn't exist and build like people have been talking that since Whitlam and Albury were done. Even when n-
4: people do re- overseas, like yeah. it takes decades and it doesn't really work. Yeah, you know. Actually, you only have to say one word in respond to that, which is Canberra.
0: You know, it's funny, but even when you look at the gentrification of existing suburbs, it takes decades, you know, so creating a city that's going to take over as a major metropolis.
3: I am a big advocate, not for changing our population policy at all, but for a very fast train uh, across the entire East Coast. And if you built that, then you might actually fundamentally begin to create an infrastructure that changed the demographics. But that is literally a 50-year project, right? And what are we going to do in the meantime? And, And I think part of what we're trying to say with White Paper 3 You'll notice what we didn't do was do... And, and look, Jane Francis and I met 15 years ago because we co-founded a public policy think tank called Per Capita, which I'd like to think has made a good contribution to public debate. Jane Francis worked in two Prime Minister's offices. We understand public policy at a fairly deep level. And, um, you know, I spent a week in a hotel room with Albo at a mate's wedding in in Ireland. I I get what government has to do. What this... I just said it so wrong, ...did not do... Uh, we were sharing with mates, so it was all right, nothing weird. Um, what, this, what this paper does not do is start every sentence with the phrase, the government order, right? There's real limitations on what governments can do and the biggest problem in housing debates, in our view, is that everybody has assumed and debated what the government ought to do. And the reality is the problem is much bigger than government. And that's why we're talking about, you know, the entirety of government, state and federal contribution to housing in this country last year, I forget what it will be this year, was about $11 billion. Okay? It's just not that much. Okay? The private landlords in this country have $2 trillion. If we can create structures that work better for them, then we will have 200 times as much capital to invest behind solutions that might work. And so that's what we're trying to do, is to liberate private capital. That's not to say there aren't roles for government, but anyone who thinks and is going to... And I'm, I'm not willing to wait any longer, you know? I've been out there advocating for more social and public housing for 40 years now, as have many other finer people than me, right? And, you, you know, one of the things you learn in political activism is that you need to have a theory of change, and if your theory of change turns out not to work, and that theory of change is we're going to advocate for this and governments are going to do it, well, that has unfortunately, broadly speaking, not worked. And I'm not, for a moment, taking away from the fine efforts of good people who are going to continue that, and they should. But we we need some other solutions, that, and, and what we're proposing are things that, broadly speaking, do not require decisions or money from governments. And I think that's central to getting answers that are actually going to work at the scale we need.
4: Because we also recognise it's not even just the scale. It, this is stuff is really hard for governments. I arrived in Australia in 2004, and so I just remember John Howard saying no one ever complained to him about the value of his house going up, right? So, uh, not his house, their house. Um, but, the, you know, this is, probably, it, this is it sort of deeply integrated the housing system into the kind of broader economy in Australia, and there, every Australian needs a roof over their head. Um, and so, the, you know, the scale is just colossal. Well, I think, and, you know, we've talked many
0: times in this podcast about the, you know, the uniqueness of of um, the the role that residential property plays in this country's economy. And, you know, in the introduction, I said, you know, we've, we've discussed, is it too big to fail the property, the residential property market here? We have certainly discussed, um, you know, you, you've provided some insights into why it's got to that point or what's, what, why it's got to the stage it's got to. But also, um, you know, how resourceful we are in, in ensuring that it continues, i.e. the third uh, party shared equity side of things as a, as a way to keep sustaining it, right, and propping it up. Will it get to sixth generation? Who knows? So some other clever solution will no doubt come up for that. I think um, what what you say about being pragmatic effectively is it basically it is what it is. To so stop fighting it and let, let's just work with it um and i think that that's really where this discussion is you know if i can pull it to to a point that that where uh, that really sort of encapsulates everything we've just said is that a lot of this sucks you know a lot of this totally sucks for a lot of people And but but railing against that, getting angry about the 10% of landlords that own more than two properties, getting angry about you know landlords putting up rents when when for many many years landlords have been reducing rents and nobody gets angry when that happens when their rent drops, you know. So getting angry at the at the the enemy that is actually not causing the problem, has not not been the the cause of the problem, isn't going to solve it, you know. So this what you're presenting is. Okay, well, you know, investors, you love property. Let's get out there and let's actually start doing this a bit
4: so differently. the Irish Sea, you wouldn't start from here, but you know what? We have to. Yeah, that's it.
3: So just imagine a world where more and more of Australia's current landlords and their $2 trillion are invested into funds, some for shared equity to help home buyers get homes, and, and a, probably a larger proportion into institutionalized, into funds that manage rental properties in a dignified and long-term way. Well, that does two things. One, it provides the capital for those systems to operate, but it doesn't bring new money into the system, so it doesn't raise prices. It simply moves the, the money around, right? And what it also does is free up those that housing stock that was owned by those landlords to either then be owned by better, more appropriate owners, either homeowners through shared equity, or institutional owners through institutional rental. So you've redeployed a pool of existing capital. You've got those those existing homes then in better ownership structures. And in the case of the rental funds, if you can then accumulate large consolidatable sites over time, you've set the stage for the expansion of large-scale affordable housing to hit the supply side. So You know, Australia's landlords can be central to this solution. Uh, They won't be the enemy. They will be the source of capital. Um, And we can stop this, this false debate about trying to find a villain and recognize that the system is the villain. And if we build a different system, we can get a better outcome for everybody under that rule. You know... If there was a game of football out there that, that where the rules allowed people to treat each other badly and beat each other up and not get penalised, uh, then everyone would go out there and thump their opponents and cause brain damage and do all sorts of terrible things, not because they're bad people, because that's what the system would allow. If you then change the rules of the game and create a better system and you introduce a salary cap and you structure the market in a different way, then you get a better quality game and a better quality outcome for all. So that's what we're trying to suggest is... And, you know, Longview will play some tiny part in that, but what we're trying to do with our white papers is outline a solution that actually all participants could get on board with and start building a different system together.
2: Awesome. I think there's lots of, lots of uh, great ideas and I think it is a big debate, right? And it is, it is a a whole market solution. And I would love to see, you know, more institutional and and funds to exist in the residential space. It's it's always surprised me why that hasn't been a solution here. Um, and I agree with you, Evan. A lot of the reasons why that hasn't happened is because they wouldn't know what they're doing, right? Uh, and they wouldn't get the returns to justify. And then there is issues with tax. There is issues with leverage. And um, and and absolutely. So I think there's a whole marketplace that hopefully you guys can be successful in creating. And um, yeah, we wish you well with it. And you know, we'll check in maybe in twelve months' time to see how you're getting on. So thanks for coming on and um, having a great chat.
3: Thank, thanks very much our definition of success is not us succeeding but a whole pile of others doing the same thing yeah We'd absolutely F- thanks, for, thanks for hearing us out
1: if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode you can send us a voicemail or a written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au elephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to
0: find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.